however you're going to behave, however you're going to accommodate yourself to modernity, I don't want you sort of know, to uh, do it sort of with a clear conscience that I'm going to be Hegelian and that means that I'm a fantastic uh, modern person and I'm a fantastic sort of Christian. I want to say you may very well be a fantastic modern person, but you're not a fantastic Christian. So I don't want you to be that comfortable because it's intellectually dishonest. You haven't done the work. So I think that it is it's part of an, an apologetic enterprise, an apolemical enterprise. So we're in the realm sort of of we want to disenchant. Well, I want to disenchant back. The disenchanters themselves need to be disenchanted. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from and what comes next? Let's chat. My guest today is Cyril O'Regan, the Catherine F. Husking Professor of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. Cyril's work spans systematic theology, historical theology, and continental philosophy and ranges topically from 19th century theology and philosophy, especially Hegel, to mysticism, apocalypticism, Gnosticism, religion and literature, and postmodern thought. The work of Hans Urs von Balthasar has been central to his thinking. Cyril is in the midst of his multi-volume Gnosticism in Modernity project, the first volume of which came out in 2014, entitled An Anatomy of Misremembering, from Balthasar's Response to Philosophical Modernity. Cyril, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. Cyril, when I talk to Mormons, one thing that puts me to shame is their incredible genealogical memory. One Mormon described to me how her mother and grandmother created sets of playing cards of their ancestors that had brief biographies and quotations on them that she would learn from as a child. And I'm lucky that on my side, there is a good bit of family memory that gets, gets me genealogically back to Ireland. But we know so little even about the first immigrants in my family to New York. And I've read that in the U.S., even people's bare names beyond three generations tend to be forgotten. Who is your earliest ancestor about whom you know something beyond just name, date, place? My earliest ancestor. Well, the Irish are storytellers, and storytelling isn't necessarily always true telling. It may well, it may be, or it may not be. Um, I have to say, sort of, what respects are to. My family tree, a very complicated family tree, as it turns out, it's divided so there's no into ancestors that you would want to forget and ancestors that you mightn't, you mightn't want to forget, or actually you might sort of be interested uh, in remembering. Now, but that sort of is, if you like, at least from the point of view of history, relatively short-term memory. It is that those people who go beyond sort of your grandfather, grandmother, and so forth, and we all sort of start out sort of looking sort of, you know, for some gold under sort of the genealogical tree or at the bottom of it, and sometimes you don't find that. Now, on the other hand, it is, I think, part sort of, you know, of the story, narrative of myth, of ancestry period, 
that the very name Oregon, which in Gaelic is Oregon, that actually that press does have an ancestry. And that ancestry sort of goes back sort of to the Earl of Thomond, back sort of to the 11th century. These sort of there were sort of a, a major sort of power family sort of in the south of Ireland. And uh, Regan, or Regan, we obviously have that kind of character sort of you know, as a first name sort of in a Shakespeare play. But Regan or Regan sort of was the nephew, we believe, not the son, but the nephew of Brian Baru, who was the last High King of Ireland. So uh, while sort of you know, there is a kind of paltry result, if I do sort of a more immediate kind of family genealogy or perhaps sort of an embarrassment, but not an embarrassment of riches, uh, the very name itself, the very name itself does in fact have ancestry. So it's not accidental that where I come from, which is uh, Limerick City, uh, Limerick City, Clare, sort of Antipary, these sort of no are the con- uh, kind of the contiguous counties. The name Oregon is the name you would expect sort of to find there. In other words, that short of the last 50 years, uh, names in Ireland do come and are in fact sort of in particular places. Uh, this name of uh, Oregon or Oregon, at least sort of I like to believe that when I have been told that it is in fact chartable back sort of near to the nephew, the last high king of Ireland, whether that is true or false, I certainly have interest in it being true. How would you compare your career to James Joyce's? Do you consider yourself an exile? I do consider myself an exile, but that's, I think, sort of is, I'm an exile in fact. He's an exile in principle. I'm an exile in fact. That is, he left in order sort of to find himself, and I left because I needed to leave. Which doesn't mean, of course, that the reason that I left was purely accidental. I left, I left Ireland when I went to Yale as a graduate student really not out of any particular ambition. I mean, I might have had intellectual ambitions. I had no academic or professional ambitions. Uh, I, I came from the working class, so if you know anything, so anything sort of that, even getting to high school sort of you know, was a half miracle. So I wasn't educated enough to have ambition. I was reasonably, I was smart enough to be able to think and somehow or other that reproduced itself in some particular way. And I blundered into sort of you know, some situations, but I blundered. I would never have left Ireland. So I had no, unlike James Joyce and unlike Stephen, Stephen is going sort of, you know, in order to save himself to be the kind of person, that the manufactured person he's going to be, uh, he's going to leave. I have never sort of had the idea of manufacturing a person. I find myself given for better or worse. I never found myself sort of in, this, in a kind of way in which I thought of myself that I'm going to be sort of you know, another example of Bildung's romance. Sort of, I, I'm going to I'm going to be the artist who creates the condition of the art by creating the very artist. So I didn't leave this. I didn't leave Ireland. So sort of, you know, to uh, somehow rather realize professional dreams. Sort of by going to Yale. Basically, Yale handed me sort of handed me it almost handed me a scholarship, and that's how things worked out. I, and I left and accepted after having turned down any number of other scholarships, precisely because. The year sort of that before I went back to Yale, I had done a year sort of a couple of years previously. Year before I went back to Yale, I was working on a construction site. And I was very lucky to be working on a construction site. It was a time in which employment level uh, in Ireland was at 26%. So I thought, look, I really don't want to be on welfare for the rest of my life. Thank you very much. So, well, maybe I'll go to grad school at Yale. Now, I don't mean to be flippant with respect to Yale. I got a fantastic education. I loved it. I met sort of some sort of my closest friends there. So the fact that it wasn't a part of my ambition doesn't mean that it wasn't sort of you know, an absolutely irrevocable good. It was. It was all of that. But none of it, none of it belonged to the order of intention. Anne Carpenter begins each chapter of her book, Theopoetics, with an original poem 
and the book functions as a prosa metrum in the nature of like Boethius's consolation of philosophy. So the prose and the verse work together to create a meaning that neither could achieve alone. Should more theologians be writing poetry? I think the more theologians should be writing good poetry, but whether whether you can guarantee that or not. Bad poetry is noxious. Great poetry is disclosive. And not really is it disclosive in, say, I think sort of that to the degree to which sort of uh, you're talking about Anne or sort of other examples of that, contemporary examples and examples sort of in the past. What I would say sort of is that poetics itself is productive in the sense that it's not an accident that, you know, a a chapter sort of you know, is an exegesis, you know, let's say a 24-line lyric. But everything depends upon, everything depends upon the poem as to whether that's going to work. So to the degree to which I think it does work, it's a particular genre. I myself sort of, you know, kind of would feel perfectly comfortable sort of, you know, operating out of that particular mode. But I do think sort of that if one is going to do that kind of thing, the poetry better be good. And it better be good, I think, for two reasons, because a poem generally is something to be received sort of by other people and generally so it isn't commentated on sort of, you know, by sort of you know, the particular poet. We do, of course, have sort of poets, theologians commenting sort of, you know, on their work, and John the Cross sort of, you know, comes to mind sort of, you know, as an example. But, of course, in his case, he rewrites, his poem is a rewriting of a poem and an interpretation of the poem and so forth in Spiritual Canticles. So I think it's a brazen move. I think it's a justified move. But you don't want bad poetry because bad poetry sort of, you know, is not, in fact, productive. So if it isn't really good, the commentary on it sort of is a commentary on something sort of, you know, which is already floundering. So I think one has to be careful. The idea of it is fantastic, however, because a chapter sort of, you know, which has sort of a, has a poem sort of as its lead in is a chapter sort of, you know, in a un, itself a universe of possible interpretations of a poem. It itself turns out to be a gesture, so with respect to that which overflows it. And also, I think, sort of, you know, gives certain expectations as to what the prose also is going to do. You write poetry yourself, right? I do. I do. And are there moments when you feel this particular theological question is something that I want to approach via lyric poetry rather than a more discursive format? And, and, and how, how do you recognize that? How do I recognize that? Okay. I have a cache of poems, probably a, 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 I mean, I have a number of kind of books of poems. I publish poetry, so, but then there's also books which have yet to be kind of published because some of the, some of them are published, some are not. But I have sort of this book of poems called Origin in Alexandria. And that's a kind of seeing, one, seeing one's way back sort of, you know, into a theologian who himself was a kind of poet insofar as there is what he actually says and then sort of, you know, what he hypothesizes. So I kind of think about it that we've got a daytime origin of Alexandria, who is just a remarkable figure in any event, in the sense that we've got these works, we've got these biblical exegesis and so forth, we've got that principes. And then we've got sort of someone who's thinking about X, Y, and Z outside the box and so forth. So that's just a kind of model. It's not, it's, it's not necessarily that everything he says sort of kind of rhymes with what I want to think. But I did, I have written sort of, you know, probably a full book of, of poems. Got to do sort of with, to imagine even further sort of what are those thoughts which are not translatable necessarily into good theology. That is that the thoughts sort of, you know, which are jagged, experimental, but not necessarily the thoughts sort of, you know, for the community are the thoughts. And I think what theology is, the kind of set of directions with respect to how the community sort of, you know, can believe better, behave better, feel better. 
But there are other things sort of, you know, which don't serve that particular function. And for me, sort of, you know, I don't use poetry to serve the standard theological function. I tend to operate sort of, you know, in kind of standard mode with respect to that. But I think with respect to poetry, I don't operate in standard mode. I can say things. I can worry about things. I don't claim anything, but I can worry about everything, worry about absolutely everything, and worry about it sort of, you know, in ways in which I don't have to sort of, you know, feel responsible for a community or the idea of a community. I don't know whether I have a community other than the communities, whatever it is, of Roman Catholicism. But nonetheless, the idea of a community, the idea like when I write, it goes into and it's for a particular community. That just seems to me to be the only way for me to think about these matters. And therefore, I think I have a substantial degree of responsibility. When I write poetry, however, I allow myself an amazing degree of irresponsibility. So I don't actually behave like Anne. I, I behave sort of, you know, in some sense, disjunctively rather than conjunctively. I understand what it means to behave conjunctively, and I affirm it as long sort of, you know, as the poetry part sort of, you know, is, is really good. And then presumably the second part, that is the prose part, the explication part sort of knows. Fascinating. The title of your magnum opus is not a genealogy of misremembering, but instead the anatomy of misremembering. What does the analogy of anatomy do for you that genealogy does not? Ryan, I think the following. Um, so I wrote that book, which, you know, echoes my actually really genealogical project, which has Nazi Return of Modernity, uh, the books of the Fanyaka Burma and so forth. It echoes it. What the first thing I need to do, I think, is when, I, when I'm doing the Bodhisar work, and I have just the manuscripts, the second manuscript on anatomy, sort of which is on Heidegger, and again, there'll be genealogical moments in that text too. What I wanted to do sort of was that anatomy misremembering, I think, had, I wanted to stay with Bodhisar as long as possible without it necessarily being an exegesis of him. So it's not an exegesis of him per se, but it's about the way in which he construes in a very complex way modernity. And part of my task, I think, sort of is to make it clearer. I was trained philosophically. He's not trained philosophically. So I feel sort of, you know, I can clean up things sort of, you know, which I owe to him in terms of intuition. But I think I can clarify sort of, you know, in a way that he didn't, as a matter of fact, clarify sort of in his voluminous work. So the first thing sort of about, about sort of anatomy is that, well, it just means anatomy. Bodhisattva is interested in figuring out, first of all, we have to, in figuring out what is the proper description with respect to modernity. And what I argue is that the first thing he wants to say about modernity is that since, at least in terms of his proponents, who are sort of the ones, the, the ideologues of modernity, they, they want to say that some rupture has occurred, some rupture between the pre-modern discourses and now these modern discourses. The pre-modern discourses are not methodological. They tend to allow the imbrication of discourses, the modern do not. Pre-modern discourses are going to validate heteronomy, modern discourses, autonomy. Pre-modern discourses are going to, to insist upon sort of the massive distinction sort of between God sort of in the world and God and ourselves, and modern discourses will tend not to do so much. So the first thing is, it's clear, therefore, we can say that modernity is based upon either an actual or both, an actual uh, forgetfulness of what has gone before, that is, what has gone before that which can be licensed as modern, 
uh, or a will forgetfulness. That is, that essentially is programmatically intended so, you know, to make sure that we don't actually call sort of upon pre-modern sources, precisely because they have the kind of contaminants, that is, they have the disvalue sort of, you know, of pre-modernity, whereas uh, modernity has the reverse, you know, autonomy, et cetera, and so forth. So that's going to be one of the constituents, either, either actual, accidental, but serious and systemic, and or, or will forgetfulness. But then what, I, then what I, I started thinking about was, it isn't only that. It seems that, and Charles Taylor, I think, will give, you, give one some idea of this in terms of you know, the way in which sort of, you know, he charts things. He doesn't really kind of stop and say, look, okay, modernity has got to do with the Enlightenment. Uh, so whether it's a Lockean Enlightenment or the French Enlightenment or the kind of softer German Enlightenment. So we have a series of Enlightenments, right? A series of disconnections with respect to the past. Some of them absolutely vicious, some of them mildly accommodating, and some of them significantly accommodating. He wants to say, well, there's also, therefore, the second problem is, in modernity overall, the second problem is, how do we handle the modernity which has come on the scene with all kinds of promises which are not realized? Of course, it is the case that English Romanticism, on the one hand, wants to leave behind standard forms of Christianity, and on the other hand, it wants to leave behind the Enlightenment and its technological, technical outputs, which are devastating with respect so to, to the land and devastating with respect so to cities and so forth. But as they do that, it turns out that there is a massive interest in sort of refiguring a religious discourse out of the broken up parts of Christianity. So two examples. Blake, of course, is the the or example. That is that Blake is going to say that his poetry is religious, that the religiousness is original, that the that the religious has something got to do sort of with Christianity, but actually only got to do with Christianity by a series of inversions. He is extraordinarily well read because of Thomas Taylor in sort of ancient hermetic discourses, from which sort of he crafts all kinds sort of you know, all views about sort of you know, the world as a mundane shell, about the creator sort of you know, being a demiurge who's fallen. He he now wants to remember in the pre-modern, but then what is he going to remember in the pre-modern? He's not going to remember standard forms of Christianity. He's going to remember so sort of those forms of Christianity and or those discourses which can do work on Christianity and reform it. Therefore, it's an act of misremembering. Right. Yeah. So I guess to to return to the question then, because you are telling a story, you're engaged in narrative, it is then a little surprising that the key titular word is anatomy, because anatomy is not a story. It's a spatial analogy. And we could even say that that it's related to the domain of pathology. How are you thinking of it there? What do you want us to hear in that word? Okay, I like the challenge. I think the challenge sort of is a good one. I mean, I'm, I think sort of I have sort of a pretty clear answer to it. Remember what I said in the beginning. I said sort of that anatomy sort of is, what is a proper description of modernity? What ways sort of you know, can it, what ways can it deal sort of with the past in an ungrateful way? So one ingratitude is it forgets. Another way is misremembers, right? So anatomy covers that. That then leads to the second question, and that, and that is why you did identify anatomy also as genealogy, and it is. But I get to genealogy in this instance by way of anatomy. I then ask the question, to the degree to which, therefore, Balthasar suggests that at various times, but not in any systematic way, he thinks of, well, Hegel's Christianity looks very Neoplatonic, he says, at one point. Hegel's Christianity looks very apocalyptic, he says. Hegel's Christianity looks very Marcionite, he says. 
and very, and then he says otherwise that Hegel's Christianity looks very Gnostic. So one of the things I do sort of is, I try sort of to, and I, I think that there's reason for saying all of those things. And that's what I actually say. But I also say, I think that Bodhisattva really does want to say, I say it, I think, probably sort of a bit more clean than he would like. I say, as we examine sort of you know, these ways in which Hegel is borrowing sort of ancient discourses to mold an acceptable form of Christianity for him, an acceptably modern form of Christianity, which doesn't have sort of what he thinks of the standard dogmatic kind of downsides. He may very well sort of somehow rather dip into all these discourses. But then what I argue is, so I'm already doing genealogy. Then the question is, which family tree does he most nearly belong to? The answer sort of in the text is that the family tree you most nearly belong to is vanity and Gnosticism, just in terms of the way in which the deformations occur. I myself, on, you know, on my own behest, rather than kind of doing kind of Balthasar with respect to this, the third volume of the Nazi Return series, which will be on German idealism, I make the argument pretty much sort of, you know, on sort of my own recognizance. And because I have a far more technical apparatus than Baldassar with respect to Valentinian narrative grammar and so forth, I can make probably a more sturdy case. But I wanted to kind of pay homage to Baldassar in setting sort of that anatomy moves towards a genealogical investigation with various difficulties in terms of Hegel taps into various kinds of, di- of discourse. Which of those discourses in the last analysis really sort of is the one so that that is massaging sort of a Christianity to make it look, from my point of view, unrecognizable from a normative point of view. I like that he's massaging Christianity. Which genealogy in the Bible, can you pick a genealogy, Old Testament or New Testament, that you would think of as closest to your own genealogical purpose? So, for example, you know, the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew demonstrates the legitimacy of Jesus's claim to be the heir of the Davidic monarchy. And Luke, by contrast, sets out to prove that, you know, despite his human ascent, Jesus was ultimately the son of God. So these are, every genealogy in the Bible is making some kind of argument. What, which would you, would you want to pick one for the kind of argument that you're making? Well, I think it wouldn't be one of those because uh, those genealogies sort of, you know, are what kind of privileged line sort of, you know, is Jesus going to be inserted to and for what purpose? The kinds of genealogies I'm interested in doing so sort of, has got to do sort of, you know, with who is the son of Cain? That is, who in fact belongs sort of, you know, to the non-chosen family, family tree? So it seems to me sort of that that's actually where I go. So the genealogy that you describe sort of, I think, that kind of genealogy sort of works fairly well, I think, for, I think, Catholic theology in general. That is, that to the degree to which you are a contemporary Catholic theologian, I think that whatever your preference is, all of us are deeply embedded in tradition. We sort of accept sort of all of it. We accept I think there's a polyphony in it. It isn't just simply one thing. Often for different purposes, sort of we sort of you know, may emphasize different elements of that tradition, sort of uh, in contrast sort of, you know, to the previous generation and so forth. But all of it is a sacred line. So what I'm doing sort of is the non-sacred line. So it'd be a little bit more sort of like the sons of Ham, sort of, you know, or the, the sons of Cain. What I'm interested in it are those discourses, which really are religious. I mean, whoever philosophically adept they may be which seem to be interested in negotiating with Christianity, but actually sort of want to overcome it on narrative grounds. So in other words, that it's not the case when one talks about Gnosticism or Valentinianism that you add something to it by saying Gnostic narrative or Valentinian narrative. 
They are from ground up narratives. That's the point. The second point about it is that the ground up narratives meant sort of to be the narrative which overlays, digests, and consumes the Christian narrative to give the Christian narrative meaning. So that they're doubly narrative. They're their own narrative. And then they are what I call a metaleptic narrative. That is, they're a transformational narrative. So in that sense, narrative, it's looking sort of at the ways in which the biblical narrative slash the Christian narrative finds a simulacrum, finds its real narrative shadow side, and then asking the question on the basis of an analysis of how that works in ancient thought, can you see any analog of that working in modern thought? And the answer to that question is, yes, you can. And that helps me make sense of, there's a phrase that used repeatedly, which is genealogical battle. And when I first read that, I thought, that's it struck me as odd, because I don't think of genealogies as engaging in, in battle. But, but really, by that, you mean that there is a contest of master narratives. And that is the battle, that they're each trying to out-narrate each other. Is that what you're getting at? I think I think it is. I think it's exactly what I'm getting at. And and therefore, from my point of view, it's part and parcel sort of of the theological enterprise. I can perfectly well understand that someone would come along and say, well, that's kind of, you're involved sort of in something that seems very interesting, not quite sure it's important, and the kind of in the bad day seems meretricious. You just don't need you just don't need to be getting very sophisticated about these kind of things, because ultimately they don't carry any weight. From my point of view, however, they do. So just one very simple example. It seems to me sort of that if you are in many graduate schools in theology in North America, you know, the following sort of pretty regular occurrence. And I was a student at Yale and I was a professor at Yale, so you know, outside the Catholic system. So you've got sort of, um, you know, your modern theologians and your 19, modern 20th century theologians and 19th century theologians and so forth. So, you know, you've got your Jungels, you've got your Jürgen Moltmanns, you know, who everyone knows is related distantly or not so distantly sort of from Hegel and maybe with a little bit of sliver sort of O'Shelling thrown in and so forth. Okay, all of that sort of seems innocuous, right? But if you have to make, let's say, a judgment with respect to Jungel or Moltmann and so forth, the Hegelianism does matter. In other words, that we want to ask the question, will the Hegelianism interfere sort of with the theological outcome, being the Christian outcome, or not? And if you take Hegel on his own word, that what he's doing really is he's saving Christianity from itself, so that, you know, by kind of refiguring it. Then you then you think this is fantastic that he's depending upon Hegel, who has refigured Christianity, who has saved the doctrine of the Trinity according to Hegel, and Hegel is thinking of Schleiermacher, who doesn't have one. And you could think, well, everything is hunky dory. You know, it might or might not so there's no beat to your taste. But so if you reject it, it's only because you know it isn't to your taste. From my point of view, this is far more serious because you haven't asked yourself any questions whatsoever. So if it is true that, let's say, Moltmann, contemporary, relatively contemporary, at least very quite modern theologian, who is very interested in not saying, not really sort of uh, going along with the tradition with respect to a doctrine of the Trinity, not going along with the tradition with respect to doctrine of creation, or shall we say, giving a imaginative recodification in which sort of, you know, people might feel that they got the doctrine and they've got imagination to boot, you know, the, so that really sort of, you know, is one and one equals two. It isn't surely that better than a kind of St. Thomas Aquinas or an Augustine with respect to these, these matters. But what I tend to do is, okay, fine. If you do agree, then so it's dependent upon Hegel. Let's try sort of, and actually you think you've been critical, but let's try and think, 
what operations has Hegel performed in Christianity to make it gel with modernity so that we have human autonomy, we've got society, so there's no whereby societies have imminent values that don't always have to be referring out to God and so forth, with no alienation between human beings and God, because we're already kind of divinized and so forth. So ask the question, we have sort of these particular operations performed in order to get a kind of result that is congenial with respect to modernity. But what about the price of those refigurations? And what about sort of the price of not merely the doctrinal refigurations and conceptual refigurations, what about the recommended behavioral configurations? So no asceticism, holiness is ludicrous, church going is, well, you can go to church, but really sort of the real presence is thinking sort of in Lutheran way with respect to sacraments is really a cipher in any event sort of what we can have sort of, you know, in civil society. So I'm thinking, okay, something has gone badly wrong. So now we're looking sort of at what looks like a, a doppelganger of Christianity. And we're accepting that as if that actually is always Christianity. And I want to say, excuse me, it's not Christianity. It's not, it's not even Lutheran Christianity. And then I ask, how did this happen? What sort of, what kinds of things has Hegel done that are analogous? We can find analogies earlier. And what actually are the kinds of the transmission discourses which would encourage Hegel to head in that direction? Last summer, you participated in this Theological Genealogies of Modernity conference that was hosted by Oxford. It was unfortunately remote, but I listened in on all of that and just found it really fascinating. And it struck me that many of the debates that got people really, that motivated them in the Q&A sessions were ultimately, I think, debates that assumed different problems that we were trying to address without actually explicating what those problems were. So, for example, John Milbank's talk was about pushing back the narrative about the disintegration of the disciplines of theology and philosophy. He had previously thought it was a 13th century thing, and then he thought it was a 12th century thing, and now he's saying it's, a, it's an 11th century phenomenon. But really, the reactions to that, I think, were, were leaving implicit a disagreement about the problem. In, and for Milbank, it's an institutional problem, whereas I think for others, there was a, an assumption that it was a metaphysical issue. So... Is there a set of problems that theological genealogies of modernity are mostly trying to address? And I see that as being different from your project, because your project is actually engaged in this contest of narratives, and so it's not directly motivated by a practical problem in the world in the way that I think some of these others are. I think mine is distinguished for that reason, Ryan. I think you're right on that. And then I think it's distinguished sort of on another ground as well. That is, my project is not talking about the production of modernity. So I'm very interested sort of, you know, in not merely how modernity works in terms of its retrieval apparatus. That's, that's a more local, I mean, it's an incredibly complicated enterprise, but it's more local than what these other folks are doing. I don't think that you can provide an analysis that sort of has, that essentially sort of is operating as if it were causal. So the, one of the first things that one needs to do is what kind of claim is being made? Are you saying that X causes modernity? So from my point of view is that, well, okay, it's hard enough with respect sort of to a single experiment regarding effects from cause. When your effect is modernity, will, for instance, a cause, whether that cause is the split up of theology and philosophy, or the cause sort of, you know, is anthropological voluntarism or theological voluntarism, 
Is there any prospect of that sort of functioning causally with respect to modernity sort of, let's say, over eight centuries, could be, could be six, over four, even over three? My point of view, there is no prospect of that happening, no prospect whatsoever. That does not mean that I, I'm suggesting that you shouldn't be involved in the genealogy of the production of modernity. But, but what that involves, and this would still only be relatively adequate, that is, the best possible story, sort of, you know, which wouldn't sort of be alethic, would be sort of you know, a, a massive analysis of five, six, seven volumes of the size sort of, you know, of uh, Taylor's work, you know, who's doing approximately, sort of, you, know, you need to do sort of about four or five of those at least, sort of, you know, with respect to giving a plausibility structure, which isn't causative, uh, but sort of sets conditions with respect to sort of what modernity would look like. So from my point of view, I'm, this would be the thing that I'd be most interested in. I know an awful lot about the antecedents of modernity outside of the stuff that I'm doing. But here's what I think. I can regard any number of these things that have been said as somehow rather interesting, interesting conditions with respect to modernity. But a condition is not a cause, and conditions are multiple and not singular. In that same conference, Judith Wolf had a single line that I thought was the best line in the conference, and I was disappointed it didn't get taken up. She said, sin is what we should be focusing on, not narratives of decline or progress. What's your response to that? Sin is what we should. So if we're asking a question of cause, the cause is sin. A narrative of decline or progress is not going to give us a more accurate account of, of causation. No, it's not going to give us that. I mean, it may inform us so, so that sort of, uh, we can see ourselves in the mirror, sort of, you know, all those hypotheses with respect to modernity, right? Sort of, you know, all, well, we do need to understand ourselves more individually and socially. And the doctrine of sin and the various ways in which we have understood that sort of, you know, might help us uh, to understand ourselves more. And that way, you know, when I do genealogy, part of it is to understand ourselves more in any event. And I'm not involved in causation. What I'm involved in I want to be able to diagnose those forms of Christianity, which actually are telling you that everything the modernity is telling you, that is, that be in the world, only be in the world, uh, be autonomous, that sort of make sure that you don't actually sort of know have too much of a distance between yourself and God. Make sure that when sort of know you're involved, you think that society is inspirited, that you're lofted up above it and so forth. But you're not thinking about sort of, the agency, a divine agency and so forth. So when I do that kind of work, it's a clearinghouse with respect to actually our own self-understanding as created and as sinners. Now, I do think that the other form of genealogy is a genealogy of the production of modernity. And so the question then sort of, you know, is, is that like what I try to do? Is it that we need to understand the production of modernity, if indeed we can understand it, in order for us to find our place? So I think then that's right. I mean, I think she was, she was always right insofar as whatever we would do would have to bear upon our Christianness or lack thereof. But it's also the case, uh, to use T.S. Eliot, so that even if we got sort of, you know, we, we got the right notion about sort of, you know, who we should be as Christian, right, which is kind of what I do, between sort of that notion sort of, you know, and, and the fact falls the shadow. And between that notion and the fact falls the shadow is the shadow is sin. That is what we do, what we do uh, to gum the works up entirely. And to make sort of our relations to others and relation to God and a relation to ourselves, a relation sort of, you know, of alienation and relations in which sort of, you know, that all the things that we said sort of, you now we wanted, all the things that we aspire to are circumvented. And in fact, so the opposite comes about.
The other best line in the conference was yours. And I think you asked rhetorically, what is the pathos of genealogy? What is the value of this particular intellectual exercise? And you went on to say that the bigger issue is what's the right size of genealogy in the theological enterprise at large? And this might vary by confession, but you said as a Roman Catholic, there's a humility in the larger enterprise and genealogy should only be part of apologetics and specifically polemics. It can't do what theology does as a whole. I mean, I mean that. I think, yeah, I think I've been talking to that, right? So I think that it is when, when I do it, it's part of an, an apologetic enterprise, a polemical enterprise. That is, I want to I want to tell you, I want to tell the people who read me, people who might listen to me, usually read rather than listen, that you are going to be who you're going to be. And I simply do not have any power sort of over that. Or my power is infinitesimal with respect to persuading you sort of otherwise. But I, what I do want to hold you to account is, however you're going to behave, However you're going to accommodate yourself to modernity, I don't want you sort of now to uh, do it sort of with a clear conscience that I'm going to be Hegelian, and that means that I'm a fantastic uh, modern person, and I'm a fantastic sort of Christian. I want to say, you may very well be a fantastic modern person, but you're not a fantastic Christian. So I don't want you to be that comfortable because it's intellectually dishonest. You haven't done the work. You make the choice. No one's taking the choice away from you. What, what can and a duty is to take away from someone a delusion. So we're in the realm sort of of we want to disenchant. Well, I want to disenchant back. Disenchanters themselves need to be disenchanted. Well, you probably have time for just one more question, but this is potentially a big one. So, and this is where I want to maybe challenge you and push you a little bit on the way that you're thinking about your project. So... At times, it seems like you prefer the analogy of haunting to genealogy. I think you even say near the beginning of the anatomy of misremembering that genealogy is essentially hauntology. And what that means is, so if there's the question, how could an early Christian heresy like Valentinianism somehow be with us today if it died out in any actual form more than a thousand years ago? The answer would be that it remains in the world as a ghost. This seems to me then a major departure from analogies of genealogy and potentially a, a really good one, because first it detaches ideas and culture from the logic of transmission and development. That is the genealogical logic. And it reattaches them to a counter logic or an, even an a logic of the occult or of the fairy world. I think it's implicitly non-Christian. Uh, because Orthodox Christianity teaches that belief in ghosts is superstition and then re-describes haunting phenomena as spiritual warfare. It, it says that those voices in the attic are the work of fallen angels. They're not disembodied human souls. And I like that latter as an analogy for the kind of apologetics you're engaged in, that you're taking what a pagan world defines as ghosts, what Derrida defines as, as these ghosts haunting modernity, and you're saying those are phenomena. I hear those voices too. But in fact, it's the work of fallen angels, or in part, it's the work of fallen angels. And so I wonder why that, why is that not more prominent for you? Instead of ending up with weird collocations like genealogical battle, why not just full on turn to the analogy of spiritual warfare? Okay, uh, that's a very interesting challenge. And it's not clear that I can meet it sort of now in the way that I would like. But before I get to haunting and hauntology, uh, let me just try sort of and claim what I think I'm claiming genealogically. So 
whatever sort of my use of haunting is going to be, I don't think it's going to displace genealogy sort of in the proper way that you just described. So what I want to say is that for me, in order to do genealogy, there has to be a minimum of text transmission. I want to prove, but a common sense prove, I want to prove other than sort of you know, here I am, I'm showing off, I know this, this, and this. I want to be able to show you, and I want you to be pretty convinced, that when I talk sort of about uh, these texts of Valentinian, that actually you can look at what of what I've said about Valentinianism, you can examine and see whether that's accurate. And then, then on the basis of what I do, so with respect to narrative structure, you can examine whether that works or not. In other words, there's a way in which the work I do is not dependent upon the force of my rhetoric, that there is a certain sort of kind of way in which so you can confirm or not confirm it. And that actually is very, very important to me. So I think that what I do sort of you know, does seem to have those properties more than usual in terms of genealogists who are telling you how modernity sort of came into being and who might or might not be kind of confounding conditions sort of in cause. Respect to haunting, I suppose that what I kind of wanted to say, and I didn't, I didn't actually have sort of the the background that you have in mind, so I know in terms of the haunting of fallen angels and so forth and the paganness of it. And I certainly am not at all sort of you know, averse to it. It sounds sort of, uh, you know, wonderfully, wonderfully interesting. I suppose what I just wanted to say was that even though, of course, these modern discourses really are discourses which have, from my point of view, sort of real-world effects, to the degree to which sort of, you know, you, you tend to agree with Hegel, then you've taken sort of, you know, some kind of Antinian narrative grammar on board. That's my point. I think that's an incredibly serious point, whether I sort of know that that is proven or not proven or whether that's right or wrong. It is a very, which means that if you're a Christian, you should be extraordinarily suspicious of Hegel at best. And at worst, you, could, you should ditch him. That's sort of, he's only functioning sort of now as a, a kind of counterfeit with respect to the real thing. Haunting has got to do sort of with the effect to the degree to which these discourses are large in the text and really large in the text, from my point of view, I'm making that kind of claim. That there's a way, therefore, in th- these texts, which are not Valentinian proper, somehow or other are the means by which Valentinism continues otherwise. So in other words, you've got textually is real. In terms of effect, it's kind of like the effect of a haunting or something, sort of, which is supposed to be long dead. And of course, Valentinian, Valentinian not as, as such is long dead, unless we actually go to children's literature, where I think you find this sort of in abundance. And that's another story to be told. But so the haunting has got to do sort of know with how, how sort of uh, it effects in an alien environment when it didn't seem to have sufficient body to continue to propagate, though in a sense it had enough body to be propagated, but not enough so that, you know, to think of its whole and entire. And that's, I suppose, is what I'm thinking about the haunting affect with respect to it. Okay, actual last question. How is children's literature Valentinian? Well, here's the thing. My son and I, at one particular point, sort of, you know, were very interested because he sort of, you know, was an incredible consumer sort of, you know, over the period. So I won't go into sort of, you know, kind of all the children's literature that I have read. But normally speaking, sort of, if you're in a Catholic university, and I'm sure sort of, you know, you as a literary person, you know, when you're thinking of Catholic literature, you know, you're kind of thinking of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and all. And we think so that you can kind of re-narratize, you can re-narratize sort of Christianity put it outside there sort of, you know, at, um, you know, one or two sort of kind of degrees of distance and then reappropriate it and reanimate Christianity. I think that's presumably the purpose sort of, you know, of much of what is best in Catholic literature. We really, of course, then think about so that, well, that's also open sort of, to other people sort of, you know, who really have sort of, you know, other kind of points of view. So an example, for instance, an interesting example, and one which I have written about, is Philip Pullman. So Dark Materials. 
Dark Materials, I mean, it's a very didactic text in its own way. I mean, it's, it's brilliantly written in a certain kind of way. It's a very didactic text insofar as he tells you that, on the one hand, you're going to be immanentist, right? So therefore, it's going to be, if it's going to be power, so it's going to be a thing. So if no, it's going to be a kind of, it's got to do with matter. So there's a naturalistic assertion or axiom. So there's no going across out of all three texts. But then sort of you find sort of no, uh, all the epigraphs are coming from Blake or Shelley or Milton. In other words, they've got to do so. Now we have a romantic code. We've got naturalism now and supernaturalism. And after that, the level sort of, you know, of the supernaturalism will really have got to do sort of with, you are now sort of creating sort of a, a different religious universe. Naturalism now has its own religious universe, largely romantic. It is materialistic. So in that sense, it looks as if it's anti-Gnostic. But I argue at another occasion sort of in fairly detailed ways of how there's a negative capability of Gnosticism kind of being ultra super materialistic. That's another day's conversation. So the text itself looks like materialistic or naturalistic. All the tropes are romantic. And these particular tropes that I'm saying with respect to notions of creation, you can't have a notion of creation. A notion of benevolent creator does not exist. Uh, we've got various power sort of you know, malevolence, so it tends to go together. Uh, the eschatological state sort of you know, is not a state necessarily based upon sort of you know, a kind of your moral compunction and so forth. That's based upon uh, you sort of having a particular power or not. That is, you've been ontologically constituted as such and so forth. So it seems to me that once you start looking sort of at a text like that or a set of texts like that and reading sort of other sort of, you know, that kind of literature sort of which you know, if your children sort of somehow rather expose you to, and you read one book and then all of a sudden you get, you get hooked. It seems to me sort of, A, because children's literature or young adult literature is a literature so that most sells. That they're doing, parents actually read by proxy, that is, their kids. Secondly, sort of what sells, mostly sort of something got to do with fantasy. Fantasy sort of will eventually have to do sort of, you know, with an imaginary world and will have to, got to do sort of, you know, with uh, ways in which sort of, you know, one discovers that one is differently constituted than everyone else, that is better than everyone else. So there's already programs sort of, with respect to the outcomes. The, the outcome will not always be Valentinian. It can sort of be just a mishmash or romanticism of this and that. But some of the better, better forms, I think, sort of, you know, will tend to have sort of, you know, that sort of particular power. Well, Cyril O'Regan, thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at BeatriceInstitute.org. That's BeatriceInstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh, and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.